we have something solid we can stand on. If you have faith, you have something solid you can stand on. You know, faith anchors you to something. And the stronger your faith is, the more anchored to it you become. There's much more to it than that theologically. But at its core, faith is what anchors you to the foundation that will save you. If as long as your faith is anchored, you've got to have faith in order to be in a relationship with the Lord. I've been thinking, Brother Jim, about, I know you're thinking about this too, because I know you've been studying it out some. I never once in a while, I just touch on it. One of these days, maybe I'll do more than touch on it. Maybe we'll really get into it. I've had a whole line of scriptures in my mind on this subject about what is necessary for us to have a resurrection. What's necessary? What do we need to know we're going to have a resurrection? Well, I'd ask the question a little bit different way. How do you know you're in a relationship with God? Because if you're in a relationship with God, you're going to have a resurrection. As long as you're in the right kind of relationship with God, you can't be in your own definition of a relationship with God. Some people are. Some people believe they can serve God on their own terms. They've got ideas about God that are false, or they've got ideas about their responsibilities in regard to God that are false. And so they've created their own system of religion effectively. They can call themselves Christian or whatever they call themselves. But if you are not going to allow the scripture to speak, if you're not going to let the word of God define your relationship with God, you're just making up your own religion. I want to have true religion. The Bible talks about true religion. I had somebody one time chew me out about the word religion. They said religion is terrible. All religion is terrible. What they meant was organized religion, you know, and they had maybe some motivation behind what they said that might have been honest hearted because they saw a lot of abuses in organized religion. But I said, you need to be careful with the word religion. It isn't religion that's the problem. It's man's religion that's the problem. It's man's tampering with religion that's the problem. God has a religion. We're a part of it right now. The Christian faith is a religion. You just have to have true religion. You have to have the right religion. You got to have the right beliefs. Faith is the stepping stone. It's the beginning point for you to be in a relationship with the Lord. If we're talking about Abraham in that chapter, that 11th chapter of Hebrews, this song was based on. If you're looking at that 11th chapter of Hebrews, the whole chapter is talking about faith, isn't it? It starts with our faith. If we are ever going to receive a resurrection, if we're ever going to get what Abraham was looking for, that city, he died without ever finding that city. He was sojourning and serving the Lord because he wanted to see the city. But there was never a city like that in Abraham's day. Abraham left this world and he still didn't even have much of anything that he could call his own in terms of property. He bought some little pieces of property. And you know mainly what he bought property for? Burying people. He bought grave sites, basically, like we'd go out and buy a grave site in a cemetery somewhere and you pay for your grave site. He was paying for grave sites. So that's not pleasant property ownership, is not it? It's not like he bought a big farm or a ranch somewhere or something. Abraham was a sojourner. That's what Hebrews 11 tells us. He was sojourning. His sons were sojourning. And now you and I, who are the spiritual seed of Abraham, are sojourning. We're waiting for something too. We're looking for a city just like he was. We're sojourning a little bit different way, but we're looking for that. So how do you get there? What does it take to finally enter that city where you'll never leave again? I mean, spiritually speaking. Well, you've got to look through the steps of what it takes to be in a relationship with God. What does it take to receive these things we were singing about? Because I surely would like to know, wouldn't you? I think we probably know, but we should know for sure. The reason you can have faith in something is because you have certainty about it. You are sure about it. I want to know for sure that I'm going to see the Lord one of these days, that I'm not just singing these songs with some empty feeling that I sure hope that's true. Hope the words of that song are true. I'm going to look upon his face and he's going to take me, how does it say, through the promised land? Well, that's awful poetic, isn't it? Wouldn't it be something for Jesus to take you for a walk through the promised land? That'd be something. And all these other descriptions. 
How do you know that you're going to get there? Well, the core key thing is faith. And that subject of the resurrection is the faith is the basis of the gospel. The resurrection is the glue that holds the gospel together. Because if you take the resurrection out, there's not much good news. You could say, well, Jesus died for our sins, but he didn't raise from the dead. That's what Paul was addressing in 1 Corinthians 15. When he said, you know, there's some who are claiming that Jesus didn't raise from the dead. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then he said, I'm of all men most miserable. What would the point of my existence be in terms of my new covenant existence? The hope of the resurrection is, I'm going to say this again, the glue that holds the gospel together because the good news, the message, the whole purpose is to get us to that place. It sounds like it's just a reward. Like, well, that's just all about rewards, Brother Bear. It should be about relationship. Do you know what the resurrection's purpose is? It is a reward, but it's a reward to those that God wants to have a relationship with. God wants to give you a resurrection so you can live with him for eternity. It's all about relationship. So if you love the Lord and want to spend some time with him, then the hope of the resurrection should be pretty exciting, not just because you might rise up. Now there's different ways you could rise up. You could rise up in the resurrection and you still have some sins that you're towing behind you in your little wagon. You know, he said, some sins go before us into judgment, some follow after. And some people, well, the prophet said, pull sins back behind them like a cart rope. It's like they're the mule pulling the cart, you know. They've got all those sins just dragging them. Why would you want to drag all that weight around? You don't want to carry your sins with you into judgment. You want to let your sins go before you into judgment. All that means is you want to get them dealt with now, judge now. You want the condition dealt with in this life. If we're able to deal with the condition in this life, and if we go on to that level, Brother Joseph was talking about overcoming and defeating the carnal man here some today. If we go on to that level, we will have a resurrection that is guaranteed to be a resurrection of life. There's a resurrection of life, and there's a resurrection of what the King James Version says is damnation. That's a very misleading translation. And a lot of Christians think that. They think anyone that comes up in that resurrection has no hope. All they're facing is damnation. But the word that they translated damnation doesn't mean damnation. It doesn't mean negative judgment. It just means judgment. Judgment doesn't have to be negative. It's good judgment if you're judged righteous. You're judged, but you're judged righteous. So you can be judged righteous. You can be judged unrighteous. That's John 5. Resurrection in John 5, where it says there's a resurrection of life and a resurrection of damnation. The resurrection of damnation isn't damnation. That Greek word krisis, K-R-I-S-I-S, that word means a separation. You know how I always like memory pegs, Brother Joseph. You know that. You've been listening to me for years to know that. But I love memory pegs, especially with foreign language. In krisis, you know, here's how I remember it. You know what a crease is, right? Take a piece of paper and fold it. There's a crease. That's the line down the middle. That's what this is. It's a separation to put some people on that side of the page and some people on this side of the page, some people on each side of the crease, so to speak. So creases is judgment. There's a resurrection of life that is a guarantee of life if you overcome in this life. And there's a resurrection of judgment, which means you're still going to have to go through a process of judgment to complete what was begun in you. The question is how you get into one of those resurrections. The first and second resurrection have different qualifications for them, obviously. I think all of you know this, so I'm not going to go into some in-depth teaching on the resurrection. My mind is on how we get there. I can't get my mind off of it. How we get there. How we get there. That's what matters. I talked to one brother one time, and he was really carried away with his view of the resurrection and had kind of a divisive spirit about if anybody doesn't believe the resurrection like he does. I'm not going to tell you which view it was because it is a view among us, so I won't tell you specifically. I don't want to take any shots at anybody. But it was not our view of what happens to the soul at death. 
we believe in a physical resurrection. So he was telling me, it matters, it matters. And you're teaching false doctrine if you don't believe that, I'm going to say it a little closer, you don't go immediately into heaven. I said, well, here's the thing. We both are going to close our eyes and open them in the world. It won't matter if it took one millisecond or if it took a million years. It wouldn't make a bit of a difference. You're not sleeping and dreaming and time is passing. You close your eyes and you open them in a new world. So some things are important to know theologically, and I do. I am a big fan of getting it right, getting it right, especially if the Bible's pretty obvious. If the Bible's obvious, we were talking about a subject here at dinner. It's one thing if it's, well, there's some reasons some believe that, there's some reasons some believe this, and that's true of some elements of the issue of the Lord's Supper. There's reasons people hold their different views, and there are pretty good reasons on both sides for certain views. That is where we have to be very careful. But some things are so obvious, so clear, that those things we ought to just get right because how can you get it wrong? If you're just going to let the Bible speak, how are you going to get it wrong? But there's some things that are a little hazier. How the resurrection happens in terms of its process is very hazy. We have phrases like in 1 Corinthians, in a moment, in a twinkle of an eye, which just tells us how fast the change is going to occur. That doesn't tell us how it's going to occur. We do, though, have some time frame statements in the Bible that are pretty clear, which I don't understand how people can miss these, but in the very same passage in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, at the last trump, not every time a trumpet sounds, what is that? It's a wonderful life. Where George Bailey, they told him every time, what is it, a bell rings? An angel gets it. Well, look at that. You knew it better than I did. Every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. Do angels, well, we won't get into the question whether, leave that one for Wednesday night, Tom. We can talk about that. Might surprise you what my take on it is, but we can talk about it. But this is not theological, all right? Whoever's watching the live stream, I'm not teaching anything about angels and wings and bells either, all right? <laughs> According to George Bailey or the angel telling George Bailey, every time the bell rings or whatever, an angel gets its wings. That's not what this is describing in 1 Corinthians 15. Every time someone's an overcomer, a trumpet sounds. And they move on. I'm, oh, I'm going to get too close to it. And they go on into heaven. That's not how the Bible describes it at all. 1 Thessalonians 4 doesn't describe multiple trumpets or multiple risings. 1 Corinthians 15 doesn't describe multiple risings of that group. It describes at the last trump. That's when corruptible will put on incorruption. That's when mortality will put on life, immortality. It'll be swallowed up in life. If somebody already had an incorruptible body before the last trump, then that would make no sense whatsoever if they were just in some temporal. There's some people that believe that you go on into heaven and you're in this temporary body, and then you'll get your final one later. But that temporary body is incorruptible. It's not dying. Well, that's not what it says. It says at the last trump, these things will happen. And there is a trumpet that sounds in 1 Thessalonians 4, isn't there? That's talking about the first resurrection. That's talking about the highest hope we have, the highest calling carries with it the highest hope. And the highest hope is, I don't ever have to face judgment again. My condition was dealt with in this life. And when I go down in death, what a sweet feeling of peace you'd have. You know, death is usually a fearful thing, isn't it? But you notice also in that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, death, where is your sting? Grave, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? And it says the sting of death is sin. Let me simplify that for you. If you don't have any sin, then there'll be no sting in your death. You could die and you'd die perfectly at peace. You wouldn't be in turmoil or anxiety or anything else because if you know that I've put sin behind me, my death is nothing but the key to open the way into eternal life. 
There's nothing else I have to do or deal with. There's no more pain or suffering I'll ever have to face. At that moment of your death, you're going to enter into an existence without any corruption, any pain, any suffering. So there's no pain. There's no sting in that death because it's sin that brings the sting. As long as you know you still have guilt, there's something in my life that's not right. So that's the highest, what Paul called in his letter to the Philippians, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's the highest calling. That's the calling that is associated with the first resurrection and the bride company. But not everybody is going to be a part of the bride company. That by itself is a really simple evidence. This is another thing that somebody brought up one time. They did not understand, and it's really not hard. It's very simple once you get it. Like a lot of truths, once you get it, the problem is getting it is the challenge. But once you get it, we were talking about a few of those things too, weren't we, Brother Joseph? Certain truths that once it hits you, how did I not always see that? And I was telling Brother Joseph, he's heard me talk on it before. I was telling Brother Joseph, Brother Jim, about the first time that hit me about what it means to have faith as a grain of mustard seed. I was saying to the Lord, why would you even say a statement like that? Nobody's moving physical mountains. And then all of a sudden, that passage came to me, that I'll cast your sins into the depths of the sea. And it, just like that, there it was, I understood it. And I never have been unclear about it since. And it was just so clear and simple. That's how some of these truths are. If you get them, if you can get them, they're pretty clear and simple. So we press toward the mark for the prize, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul specifically said that he had not yet attained to the resurrection he was trying to attain to, just a few verses before that, which means there has to be more than one. I can't imagine anybody would say the Apostle Paul, after having founded multiple churches, after having brought people on to great heights of spiritual maturity and education and all the incredible level of teaching he was doing and all the other things he was doing, his missions and evangelistic work, Paul was definitely an apostle firing on multiple cylinders. You could say somebody was more specifically a certain office. Paul was undoubtedly one of the greatest teachers that have ever lived, but he was also one of the greatest evangelists. Astonishing that he could do some of those multiple offices at the level he was doing them. I don't think everybody can do that. It takes a certain gift to be able to operate at that level in multiple areas. That's a special thing. That's not normal. That's special. But he was doing it. And he said, look, I've done all these things. I've had all this resume. He obviously had faith in the Lord. He obviously was filled with the Holy Spirit. He obviously had gone to great heights of spiritual maturity at this point in his development as a child of God, as a man of God. And yet he said, I haven't already attained that which I was seeking to attain. I'm not already perfect. I'm still striving for that. There's something I haven't reached yet. I haven't taken hold of. That's what apprehended means. It means to take hold of it, possess it. I don't possess it yet. And he talked about the resurrection of the dead that he hadn't attained. He was talking about that first resurrection, that higher resurrection. But Paul clearly would have had a resurrection if he'd died. If Paul had died short of finishing his course, which somebody asked this question one time at a Bible study as well. They said, will you know? This is a really good question. I think this is an exceptionally good, it's very simple. They said, will you know when you've become a full overcomer? Paul must have known. When you say the things he said to Timothy in 2 Timothy, I'm not sure what else you could add if you thought there was something else to do. He said, I have, not that I am fighting, I have fought a good fight. Now you might say, well, that just means up to that point he did a good job. All right, let's keep on. I have kept the faith. Oh, well, that's just so far you've kept the faith. 
Well, this other one's a little tough to weasel out of. I have finished my course. And then there's a pretty important word, henceforth. I don't know the last time you ever used that word in a conversation. Unless you're a lot smarter than I am. You walk around telling people henceforth, such and such. But henceforth means from this point forward. There is a crown laid up for me. That means he had earned the crown. He had finished his course, which is what helped him during the crown. If you want to finish your course, you have to keep the faith. You're going to have to fight a good fight. That's what he told Timothy twice, you know, two different times. He said to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith, Timothy. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold. That's what will happen if you fight the good fight of faith. If you fight the good fight of faith, you will lay hold on eternal life. That's one of those other things that were one of those little revelations we were talking about at dinner. When this hit me, I thought, well, of course. That's obvious. But it never registered before, so my brain either wasn't intelligent enough or God just never opened my mind to it. But when that passage in the Beatitudes hit me, I had had one of the saints who was very discouraged. They were struggling with some things, and they said, I don't know if I ever, I don't know how I'll ever be able to go on to perfection, no matter what the conditions of the world are like, no matter what's going on. I don't know how I can do it. How can I deal with all these things? Some things I don't have the answer for, and I don't have this. And, and I understand we all can get down sometimes when we're fighting the good fight of faith. Out of nowhere, that statement hit me. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. She said, I don't know how I'm ever going to be righteous. I don't know how I'm ever going to be as righteous as that standard. I said, listen, if you will do just two things, I guarantee you will. Hunger and thirst. If you won't stop hungering and you won't stop thirsting, it's a guarantee. You shall. It wasn't you might be. All you have to do is keep hungering and thirsting. See, because the things you say, well, I don't know how to fix that problem. I don't know how to get over that. I don't know how to deal with that attitude I have or with that spirit that's in me that rises up sometimes. But I want to be so much like God. I'm hungering and thirsting like a deer pants after the streams of water. I'm so hungry for the things of God. I'm so hungry to be more like Jesus. Do you think God's not going to meet that hunger? He doesn't see one of his children starving. He's not going to provide food for them. He's not going to say they're so hungry to be better. And maybe the scenario, they don't have the strength to be better. I'll give them the strength. That's where we get overcoming grace. That's where we get applications of grace that we just didn't have. That's why it's so, so important to understand grace is not a one-time event. It's not grace applied and then everything's fine through eternity. God adds grace to grace. You know how many different letters that Paul wrote where he said in the beginning, grace be unto you in peace? Why would they need grace if they already had gotten all the grace they needed? He's writing to a church and saying, you need some grace. I'm praying for grace because we need more grace. We always need more grace because one application isn't enough. God doesn't give us all the grace we need in one application. He gives us enough grace to get far enough that we run out of our, to use the words of the song, our hoarded resources. Isn't that how it says that song? He addeth more grace. We get to the end of our hoarded resources. We hoard our resources sometimes. Sometimes we don't even know we're doing it. I never enjoyed running as a form of exercise. Hiking, walking, even very strenuous hikes I like, but running is a different story. I never really enjoyed running, but there were a few times that I tried to run. I thought, let's see how far I can run, you know, and I started to get a little stitch in my side after a little while. I say little, it didn't feel little. It felt, you know, I could kill myself. I better stop. I started to get a stitch in my side or I started to run out of breath, you know. And then the very first time I was up when I was in ROTC in high school, we went to Great Lakes, Illinois for boot camp. Oh, I found out you can run a lot further than you thought you could. (laughs) When someone's threatening your life and cursing, there's a reason they call it cursing like a sailor. 
I have never heard more curse words in my entire life. And I was in a pretty rough environment as a kid. I've never heard more curse words in my life than that time there at Great Lakes, Illinois. Oh, I found out the stitch goes away. <laughs> you just keep running. You know. You'll get another second wind. You just keep running. Sometimes we have hoarded resources. We're holding on. We think we're giving 100%, but we're not giving 100%. And God meets us when we give that 100%. God's looking for that 100%. And sometimes that's what he's waiting for. He's waiting to see, will you do more? Will you do more? If you do more, if you use up everything I've given you, everything I've given you, I'll give you more. God will never let you starve. You realize it is meant, I believe, naturally. When David said, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. That's naturally true. But I think it's spiritually true too. That's the bread we're really worried about. More than any physical, natural bread, you were talking about this in our Bible study over here when we were talking a little bit on the Lord's Supper. The real thing that matters most is the spiritual bread. Whatever else we might involve in the discussion, there are deeper spiritual meanings behind all of the things in the Bible that are ritual things. And the spiritual meaning is always the most important. So we need the bread of heaven, don't we? More than we need anything else. I'm glad God keeps providing bread to us. We've never starved. And every time we think, I can't make it, I'm I'm wearing out. You use the resources you have, God will give you more. But it is progressive. There's a process to it. You can see that process to some degree. I mentioned in the book of Hebrews in that 11th chapter where it's going through those different heroes of the faith, where faith was the basis of their relationship with God. But faith, as a basis of your relationship with God, is not just believing that there's a God. It's not just believing in God in the sense of His existence. It's truly having confidence in Him. Notice what it says in the earlier part of Hebrews 11. It says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the fathers obtained a good report. It talks about how faith... I'm trying to think of the wording now. It's a couple verses down from that. It's the sixth verse. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek after him. So it's not just believing that God is. You've also got to believe that God is a rewarder. And that just doesn't mean like he's going to give you a prize. But it means that you know God keeps his word. I see people quote that, and I think they're thinking that means God is going to give me benefits. That's true. God can give you benefits. But really what the point of that statement is, I know God keeps his promises. If you diligently seek after him, he'll keep his promises. He will give you what he's told you. If you diligently seek after him, that's the key. And that's what you see all through this 11th chapter of Hebrews, this faith chapter is a diligent seeking after God. It is people that are seeking after God when sometimes it doesn't look like there's any hope, but they're still holding on to God. When it looks like it would be easier to compromise, especially in the last parts of the chapter, talking about, if you know this, what I was talking about, talking about Daniel and the three Hebrew men, it looks like it'd be easier to compromise, but I'm going to hold on to God. It looks like it'd be easier to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. In the middle of that chapter, talking about Moses, who forsook Egypt. He left it behind. He could have had all kinds of riches and honor and all those things in Egypt, but he forsook those things because he knew that there was something greater and more glorious by following the Lord. So we have to have faith. And if somebody were asking me the question, and I did get several questions like this here lately, what does it take to get a resurrection? Well, I gave you some of the, as you well know, I know this assembly knows this well. Maybe some of our youngest people may not know all the details of this, but you certainly should be able to know enough about the truth of the resurrection because that is, as I said, the glue of the gospel. You better have the hope of the resurrection set out in front of you. That's what will keep you moving forward when it's hard to move. It'll keep you striving when you're against a lot of resistance, challenges and things going on. 
The first resurrection is a qualified resurrection in a much more strict sense. It takes a very specific qualification to come up among the bride company because the bride company is a limited number. I started saying a little bit ago that I had somebody that was having a hard time, a minister I was working with, that was having a hard time understanding why we believe there was a difference between the body and the bride. I said, the bride's just the church. The body's just the church. There's a lot of starting points you go to to show that that's just simply not the case. This is the question that I asked him, and this is the simplest question to get this. It's not even something you normally would think about, like quoting a scripture. But I said, are there going to be a lot of people added to the Christian faith throughout the millennial reign? Because he believed in the millennial reign like we do. He said, oh, there'll be millions of people that'll become Christians. I said, will they be part of the bride? He said, well, they'd have to be part of the bride. It's a church. I said, when does the marriage supper happen? That stopped the conversation for a minute. Well, it looks like it happens at the beginning of the millennial reign. He said, so the bride had to already be made up before the millennial reign starts. So if you want a really simple proof that doesn't even require a whole lot of complicated arguing, if there's going to be a lot of people brought into the church after the bride has already been constituted and already been married to the bridegroom, then the church can't equal the bride. The bride's something that comes out of the church. The body of Christ is the church, but the body of Adam is where he got his bride from. Something was taken out of Adam's body. It's not his rib. I heard somebody one time argue. I don't know why they would argue this, but somebody argued, well, men don't have one less rib, so the Bible's false. And I thought, what in the world kind of nonsense is that? First of all, I realize the King James Version says rib, but the word for a rib, selah, that word is a rib like you think of the side of a boat. Like you ever seen those old wooden boats and they have those curved sides? They almost are like our rib cage that makes up that boat. That's what that Hebrew word is referring to. It's the side of something, the curved side of something. So what God did is he reached in and took out genetic material. It wasn't a bone. You realize Adam didn't say, she's bone of my bone. He said, she's flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. He reached in there and took out genetic material and made Eve. It wasn't that Adam was missing a rib when it was all over with in terms of he yanked one out of there. It's that he took the same genetic material and made Eve. You realize the Lord is going to reach into the body of Christ and take the bride of Christ out of that body? Yes. That's another picture that you can see in that, but that's talking about the first resurrection. I don't know if I'll be able to possibly talk about what's on my mind right now at this point, but I mean, the driving thing on my mind, maybe we'll come back to it Wednesday night. That driving thing on my mind is this issue, Jim, about what does it take to get a resurrection? Because that's pretty critical. We've had some loved ones that maybe never were exposed to the Holy Spirit, but they were good and godly people. We were talking about this as well this afternoon. I said to Brother Joseph, I have some people that I look back in history and none of them were perfect, all right? At least I don't believe they were. I think they had their flaws. Most people have had flaws of some kind. But I look back and see men like John Wesley and I think this is one of the greatest voices of the holiness movement. A massive forward momentum was created by him to move us to the Pentecostal movement, whether he even knew that. What he was building and bringing together the holiness movement through the Methodism that later became the Methodist faith, what he was doing built the framework for the Pentecostal experience. Because God was not going to give the Pentecostal... Listen, this is really simple and important. We talked a little bit to our newer people about the history. I appreciated this. I really appreciate it. One of the questions were, can you tell us some of the history of your church and your body of churches? Well, yes. I gave them a bird's eye view of it, of course, a pretty high bird's eye view. But I didn't just go back to Brother Sodders. I went back further than that. Said, look, we have come out of a heritage that goes back to the early church. There were movements that led to what Brother Sodders was called to do. Those movements started with things like the Reformation and then the Holiness Movement. 
And then you notice that after the holiness movement came the Pentecostal movement, if you know your church history. And thus, if we are heirs of both of those movements, we call ourselves holiness Pentecostal or Pentecostal holiness, which we are. You realize the holiness movement preceded the Pentecostal movement. I don't believe God was going to pour out his spirit on a people that were not seeking to be holy. The purpose of the spirit is to make you more holy. So first, God put it in the hearts of those men. We need to be more holy. And this is just how God works. It's the hunger and thirsting after righteousness. I imagine they were striving with all their strength. And it's what causes sometimes people to say, you don't want to cause people to think that they can do something they can't, and then they lose their hope. No, God can do anything. Which means if God puts it on your heart to live a holier life, and you're thinking, I don't know if I can reach this mark. Yes, you can if God has put it on your heart. Because God will give you the strength and grace to do it. And I believe those men working under the holiness movement were longing to be holier. They were doing everything in their being to be holier. And I imagine there's times they thought, but there's still things going on inside of me that I just can't overcome. And when it finally, I think, reached a point of intensity where there was this terrible longing for more holiness, but they'd reached a ceiling, then God poured out the Holy Spirit. So the power would be there to let them break the ceiling. So I said, somebody asked me one time, I guess I'm kind of on a question and answer tonight. Somebody asked me one time about how long you think it'll take for people like Daniel and them to receive the Holy Spirit. We, of course, believe they have not come up yet. We believe they still are going to come up. And it's the second resurrection if we get there at all tonight. But they couldn't come up as part of the bride unless they came up somewhere else, which is what some believe, and went on into the church. They'd have to be able to go into the church before the marriage supper. But the second resurrection is at the end of the thousand years. First resurrection is prior to the marriage supper. So to qualify for it, you have to already be a part of the bride. So you see, you have to narrow it down. Where would they come up? They'd come up in the second resurrection. And the person's question was, I don't think they meant it in an arrogant way at all, but they said, do you think we'll be helping Daniel to go on to perfection and get the Holy Spirit? I said, you might, but I'm going to tell you what I think about men like Daniel and Job. I think they were pushed so hard against the ceiling of how close they could get to God. They were so longing to get closer to God that they had the ceiling of that old covenant hanging over them and they couldn't push through it. But I'll bet they were pushing with all their strength against it. I want to get closer to God. I want to get closer to God. I want to get closer to God. This is as good as it gets. When the ceiling's gone, they're going to be launching up. I told him, and I felt something. We had the Spirit just run through that building that night when I said this. It wasn't because I said it, but it was because I think the Lord is witnessing to it. Like he witnessed to this issue of prayer today in this service. He was making a point about prayer today. Some of the questions we even got Saturday. But I said, I think Daniel is going to come up speaking in tongues. Cornelius' household just about did. Nobody had to tarry with them. Nobody had to explain it to them. Their hearts were just so right. You think somebody like Daniel, who longed to be closer to God, and he was butting up against that glass ceiling of the old covenant, pushing with all his might, how can I get closer to God? And then all of a sudden, God removes the ceiling? I think he's going to come firing up speaking in tongues. He's going to come out of the grave speaking in tongues. He'll go on to perfection without any kind of effort whatsoever, because he's been wanting to all along. And that's the goal. So there's two different times you go on to perfection. You can go on to perfection before the marriage supper. You can go on to perfection after the marriage supper, but you're going to have to do it one of those two times if you're going to have eternal life. That's the price of eternal life. Perfection is the price of eternal life. So what gets you a resurrection is the questions I've been getting. I don't think I'm going to get too far in them tonight, but what gets you a resurrection? Well, a first resurrection, I just told you, perfection. That's the price tag of a first resurrection. Because the first resurrection equates to eternal life. 
You come up in that resurrection, you come up with eternal life. You come up in the second resurrection, you come up, again, under that resurrection of what the King James Version calls damnation, that resurrection of judgment. You're still under judgment. You still need to have the work completed in you that was begun in you. I started saying, I had somebody send me a question. It wasn't from this assembly, but somebody sent me a question because there's a lot of discussion back and forth among us about what is required to have a resurrection, what Brother Jim and I were talking about. And the question was, what do you do with these people who never had a Pentecostal experience, who never were filled with the Holy Spirit, the evidence of speaking in tongues? Some of them are great and godly people. Even after the Pentecostal experience is returned, where would you place the dividing line? Some people say, well, from the moment on the day of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit was outpoured, if anyone died from that point on without the Holy Spirit, they wouldn't have a resurrection. How just would it be if some precious Jewish grandma living, maybe she was in Alexandria, Egypt, which a lot of Jews lived in Alexandria, Egypt at that time, Hellenized Jews. She's living over in Alexandria, Egypt. She never even has heard about the Pentecostal experience that happened in Acts 2. You know, it took a long time for the word to get out, months and months before it started spreading. She never heard and she dies, but she was a faithful, godly woman who had faith in God. You think she's going to die without even having an opportunity to rise again? That's just illogical. It defames the character of God to make that kind of claim. What kind of God would he be if someone faithfully served him and had no idea of anything more he wanted them to do? And they did everything he asked of them and they loved him with all their heart. And then they died. You say, well, they won't have a resurrection because there's something else he wanted them to do they just didn't know about. That's a dangerous defamation of God's character. And it's true not just in that day, it's true in our day. There's some people in our day, you might not think so because we're all Pentecostal. We've been around this. There's some people in our day that have never experienced the real thing. I mean some precious old Baptist, I keep using the ladies, so I was going to say precious old Baptist sister, maybe some precious old Baptist brother somewhere that loves God with all his heart. Never been around the genuine Holy Ghost. Worse yet, maybe the only thing he got around was something that wasn't genuine. Yes. Some emotionally worked up yes. environment that turned him off to the Holy Ghost where he said, I want nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. And then he dies, a good and godly man. What do you think is going to happen to him? He has no hope. Mm-hmm. Of course he's not going to come up in the first resurrection. Nobody but the bride's going to come up in the first resurrection. But surely a just God would bring him up and give him a chance at life. Why, though, would he give him a chance at life? I so appreciate Sister Francois yesterday in the Bible study. She said, and she said it in such a, a sweet and polite way. But it was a pretty pointed statement. She was, the questions we're going to ask, you said that what you all believe is because of the Bible. She goes, I want you to give me the Bible on this. I'm like, bless the Lord, let's do it then. Sometimes that's not as easy as it sounds. Look, I haven't even got it into the question that I got yet, and I've been talking a little while. Sometimes it's not as easy as it sounds to give an answer to things. It takes some time. And there's some things you need to know this truth before you understand that truth. Line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. Isaiah 28, well, sometimes you'll never understand this line until you get this line. You have to have this first. It's like getting your foundations wrong. You get the foundation wrong, nothing else is going to line up right. Everything's going to be off if the foundation's not right. So we've got to get our foundation right first. What is the foundation? Maybe I'll start to try to answer this question, and maybe if the Lord allows me, I might finish it in another service like Wednesday. But what is the foundation of our, I was going to say it, the foundation of our faith is faith, isn't it? What is the foundation that we're built on? What is the entry point to relationship with God? What do you have to do first? Believe that he is. We were just quoting there in Hebrews 11. And that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You have to have faith and you have to repent to have a conversion experience, don't you? Yes. 
If you had a conversion experience and then you died five minutes later and it was a genuine conversion experience, I'm still just using logic and what I think is justice, but I can give you some scriptures. Wouldn't you think a person who had a genuine conversion experience with all of their heart, they turned to God and asked him to forgive their sins, but died before they received the Holy Spirit. They're just dead, never to rise again. What was the point? I want you to think about how simple this is. If somebody had a deathbed conversion experience, now sometimes we use that in kind of a pejorative way. That means like you're being insulting about it, like deathbed conversion. You know, that's not real. They just know they're dying. But there are some people that have had deathbed conversion experiences where they truly turn to the Lord. Yeah. What if somebody truly turns the Lord on their deathbed and dies? What was the purpose of their conversion experience if that was the end of their life? If they turned to the Lord, exercised faith, and fell asleep, what did that accomplish if they will never have a resurrection? This is really important, and I still haven't even gotten to one of these scriptures that are on my mind yet, but this is very important. Faith is what is the entry point to relationship with the Lord. And if the Lord considers you to be in relationship with Him, you're alive to Him. It doesn't mean you're fully alive. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but it does mean to him you're alive. Abraham was alive to God. Now, again, I'm feathering around the edges before I get to the meat. And I'm going to tell you, if I even have enough time to do it, if you look at some of the scriptures, there is no wiggling out of it. It makes it very clear. It's the word of God that is the first thing that gives you life. There's a reason, though. We say, well, you got to have the spirit and the word. Yes. You do realize, though, that this was written by the Spirit of the living God. This is a Spirit-written book that is just saturated with the Spirit of God, which means if the words, all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, isn't it? By the breath of God. So all the words of this book that are written by the Spirit are spiritual words. If those spiritual words take life in your heart, Mm. something of the Spirit is in you. You're not filled with it and baptized in it yet, but the life of the spiritual word of God is in your heart, in your mind. I'm pointing at this heart, but I mean this one. It's in your heart in the sense of your mind. It's taking root there. It's alive. What makes you alive when you're filled with the Holy Spirit? That the Spirit's alive, right? This is exceptionally simple. If the Spirit is a living force, and it's that life of the Spirit coming into you that makes you alive then that would have to be true of the Word of God as well. If the Word of God is alive, then if it comes into you, it should make you alive. Isn't that simple? Is the Word of God alive or not? One of the things we can do if we're not careful in the Pentecostal movement, and obviously we love the Pentecostal movement, it's part and parcel of who we are, our identity. If we're not careful, we can emphasize the Holy Spirit to the degree where we underemphasize other elements of the plan of salvation. The Holy Spirit is critical. You will never go on to perfection without it. You have to be born again of the Spirit. But you can't even get to that point unless you are first washed in the blood. The blood is not less valuable than the Spirit because it comes first. Saving faith is not less valuable than the Spirit because you exercise it initially before you receive the Spirit. They're all pieces that are necessary. If we're not careful, we will assume that all hope is coming from just the Spirit and forget the power of the Word. Now, the Word is Spirit-saturated, like I said. So whatever the Word is doing is already a work of the Spirit. But we can devalue the power of the Word of God and the power of faith by taking things up to another level and saying, but you have to reach this level before you get a resurrection. 
What gets you a resurrection is relationship. That is what gets you a resurrection. Abraham will have a resurrection because he was in a relationship with God by faith. If you break relationship, there might be questions as to whether or not you'll have a resurrection. There were some that broke relationship with God. There were some that turned against him, that left the Lord, turned away. Maybe they won't have a resurrection if that were the case. and They never came back to the Lord. The most biblical approach to that comes down to whether or not you turn back before you leave this world. You better turn back. Because in my humble opinion, you have to be in the way in order for you to have a resurrection. You can't go outside the way and get resurrected out there somewhere. I don't mean that the way it sounds. Get a resurrection if you're out there somewhere. If you have left the Lord, you're going to have to come back to him in order for you to have a sure hope of a resurrection. God can do anything he wants. God sometimes breaks his own rules. He broke his own rules a few times in the Bible. Sometimes you think, well, God's got to keep the rules, you know. Well, he makes the rules. He made the rules about the Moabites and said, don't you go anywhere near a Moabite. They're unclean. Make so many generations before they can even come close to you, basically. And then he led, I'm going to say this for a reason. He led Elimelech and Naomi to Moab. That wasn't a mistake. I had somebody tell me here lately that Elimelech and Naomi going to Moab was a bad thing. If they hadn't, Jesus would have never been born. God led Elimelech and Naomi there. Now, the things that happened there that were negative could have been very much the result of some of their choices while they were there, but he led them there. And then after he led them there, he took Naomi in her broken state she was in and her negative bitter, wanted to change her name to Mara, which means bitter in Hebrew, took her in her bitter state. And even in that state, her testimony must have been so powerful, Ruth was willing to follow her to the ends of the earth. What kind of child of God was Naomi? We often get critical of her because she was bitter. And who wouldn't be bitter? She lost her husband, lost her sons. She was bitter about some things, but she must have had some kind of relationship with the Lord to take a young Moabite girl named Ruth. You realize Orpah didn't do it. Orpah went through the motions, you know, like someone, well, I'll pay the bill. And you're like, no, no, that's fine. And then, you know, you go through the motions knowing eventually you'll give in. That's what Orpah did. She wasn't planning on going anywhere. She knew mama's going to keep asking. And then I'll go, well, okay, I'll turn back. She'll keep telling me to turn back. Ruth was not going to be turned back. What did she see in Naomi? All the pain and suffering Naomi had gone through, there was still something shining out of that woman's life that Ruth was willing to follow her to a foreign country full of individuals that were deeply prejudiced against her ethnic group. They were deeply prejudiced against Moabites and not just because of some kind of carnal prejudice. God had built the prejudice into them. And yet God calls a Moabite girl there to find one of the richest men in the land in Boaz and then to eventually through Boaz produce Obed and then Jesse and then David. And then you keep on going down through the family line and you find the root and the offspring of David that came out of that. Thank God Elimelech and Naomi went to Moab. It was the deliverance of all mankind because out of Moab came little Ruth and that little girl with that humble spirit. She wasn't a little girl. She was a grown woman. But that young lady with her humble spirit and her servant's heart, what we talked about here in this Sunday school this morning, Brother Aaron did. With that servant's heart, I'll just serve wherever. I'll do whatever. I'll just go glean in the corners of the field. Whatever you have for me, I'll take it. Whatever you have, that's good enough for me. And that spirit that she had that caused her to attract the attention of Boaz. I think she probably was a beautiful young lady as well in that line. But that wasn't what attracted Boaz. I don't think it was just her physical appearance that he saw. What a beautiful young lady. He saw her spirit. 
You notice what he said to her. He didn't say, oh, you're so pretty. She might have been. He said to her, I've been watching how you've been taking care of Naomi. I've been watching how you love her. You've been sacrificing for her. You've been coming out here and doing all this labor in the heat of the day for Naomi's sake. That's what got Boaz's attention, just like that's what gets God's attention. Those individuals were going back through some of the records. They were people that had a relationship with God by faith. By faith, they did these things. It was their faith. Faith is that foundational thing. And once an individual has faith, it comes by the word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, right? Once that message is given and the person accepts that message, faith starts to grow in their heart. It's growing because it's alive. Their faith is alive. And if you get something that is alive from the living God, you have the hope of life. If God puts his living word in your heart, you've got the hope of life. If God puts his living spirit in your heart. I told our new folks here the other day when they asked what separates these churches. I mentioned it this afternoon. It's the word and the spirit. It takes time to see those things, though. Sometimes you can walk in a church and the power of God is moving in such a mighty way that it's just like a shockwave. And you're immediately taken aback. I mean, in a good way. Where have I found myself? That's where you're experiencing the Spirit. Sometimes you walk in a church and there is anointed, weighty preaching or teaching or some other testimony or something, and the power of God is so heavy, you're thinking, and this is exactly what we should have. This is exactly what they said about Jesus. When Peter said, where could we go to hear the words of life? Where can we go to hear this kind of message? That's what we want for our newer people. We want them to come here, and after they've sat and listened to some teaching and preaching and testimonies, those things, they'd have to say to themselves, there's nowhere else we can go to hear anything like this. There's nowhere else we can go where there's that weight and where's that depth and all those other things. In the Spirit and in the Word, those are the two witnesses in terms of the Urim and Thummim in our day that let you know it's the Word and the Spirit. And we need both those things to witness to what we're doing. They'll produce things in the church that'll be witnesses like the right spirit, love, and other things. But we need the Word and the Spirit. The Word is a powerful thing. And I suppose my point in bringing this up tonight, why it's so heavy on my heart, is that I don't want to devalue the power of the Word. The Spirit's a mighty thing, but the Word is powerful as well. It has an effective power to change lives as well. And I'm going to ask this question again. What point would there be in someone receiving salvation who never had an opportunity to experience the genuine Holy Spirit and then to die with no hope out in front of them? What would be the point for God even giving them a conversion experience? Again, I'm starting with logic, but I want you to think about this. You do understand it's God that draws your heart. So if God pulled on you, and you start to feel something in your spirit say, I want to turn to the Lord and get my life right. I believe in this God, and I'm going to repent. If God reaches out to you, and you respond to that in faith and repentance, and then you die before you're able to get the Holy Spirit, surely He knew that might happen. Surely God knew you might die before you get the Holy Spirit. What did He save you from? You could have gone on living your life. You'd have the same end, wouldn't you? What benefit was there in him saving you from your past sins if that was the only thing that was going to occur to you? I'll give you a couple of these scriptures while I'm thinking about it. I'll give you just a few. Maybe we'll talk about it again another night because I mean, I'm feeling heavy on me. First Peter, the first chapter, the 23rd verse. Maybe if somebody has these, I don't mind quoting them because most of them are in my brain or I wouldn't be thinking of them, but it's nice to quote them out. It's good to do that. Good to hear different voices. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible By the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So what is it that causes that birth to occur? What's the instigating agent? It tells you right there. 
The Word of God. The Word of God is a powerful thing. It's just as powerful as the Spirit, and it's just as important as the Spirit. And it's just as life-changing as the Spirit. Yes, we want the Holy Ghost. We want everybody in the building to be full of the Holy Ghost. You're never going to go on to perfection without it. You've got to live and walk in the Spirit. There's another subject, is dividing up the different ways the Bible uses the word son. You'll never rise the level of sonship you need to rise to. There's different levels of sonship. You can be a son just because you're born of the Spirit, but you're not the same thing as a fully matured son. You were talking today about people in their diapers, you know, an infant. And I said to Jim, and we don't want to be adolescents either. It's stages of sonship. My son was a son when he had to have his diapers changed. He's still my son right now. He's a little more mature. And hopefully he'll keep gaining in that area until he keeps getting more mature. And eventually, maybe he'll be a son, like I was praying over little Emmanuel, not that Emmanuel. I wouldn't call him little Emmanuel. Over this little Emmanuel, I was praying over him today. Said, my God, make him a mighty man of God. He had such a peaceful look on his face the whole time I was praying for him. You know, sometimes you pray for a baby and they get a little anxious. You know, they don't know who this person is, especially with a gruff, gravelly voice and looking like a bear and everything else. But that little boy was as peaceful as you've ever seen. He didn't even open his eyes. He just had this little smile. I thought, my God, make a mighty man of God out of that young boy. Do you know, if we pray over our children and the covering of our faith is on them, they're secure until they have the opportunity to be conscious to make their own choices. That's another side evidence. Look, my girls both have the Holy Spirit. Elijah does not. But when Elijah was a little baby, and I held him in my arms and prayed the covering of God over that child, I believe the covering of God was over that child. And had he passed, I'd expect to see him again. That's what David said about his son, didn't he? And his son passed under judgment when he lost Bathsheba's child because that adulterous relationship, he lost that child. David said, you can't come back to me, but I can come to you. One of these days, I'm going to see you again, son. That's what his prayer was. One of these days, I'll see you again. And the rabbis don't think there's any talk about the resurrection in the Bible. The Sadducees certainly thought that. Not the rabbis. Rabbis are more Pharisees, but the Sadducees. Being born again, not of corruptible seed. Seed, seed, seed. The seed is the word of God. By the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. What's the next verse? For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of the man is the flower of grass. It's talking about you dying. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth away. Death is ahead for all of us. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. This word, which is the gospel that's being preached to you. When we preach the gospel to somebody, we're preaching something that is alive and will never die. The word of God endureth forever. That living word will bring life to you. Even before you receive the Holy Spirit, it'll bring life to you. Praise His holy name. Let me give you another one. John 6, 63. It says it's the Spirit that quickeneth. That's right, it is the Spirit that quickeneth. But if you go back in the Bible and study the word quicken, you're going to find some interesting statements, especially in the 119th Psalm. But he said it's the Word that quickeneth. Do you know quickeneth is to be brought to life? So if you're not alive by the Word before you receive the Holy Spirit, it would contradict that biblical statement. It's the Spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak to you He said this before the Holy Spirit was poured out. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. The words are spirit life. That means when those words hit their hearts, Mm -hmm. they had life enter into them 
They were alive to God because the words which he was speaking to them were spirit and life. By the way, the beginning of that isn't even talking about the Holy Spirit baptism. It says the Spirit quickeneth. That's true. What he's saying is the Spirit anointed word quickeneth. Amen. When the word is anointed by the Spirit, it will bring life to you. These are some of the simple proof texts Amen. for why Amen. when faith takes root in your heart, yeah. you are now in a state of being alive to God. You're not dead to God. You're alive to God. The Word of God is alive. If it's in your heart, you're alive. The Spirit of God's alive. If it's in your heart, you're alive. If God puts something that's alive in you, it makes you alive to Him. James 1, 17. It says, every good and every perfect gift is from above. Cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom there is neither variableness nor shadow of turning. So we can have confidence in Him. We can have security in Him. Listen to this. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. Yes. To beget somebody is to bring them to life, to sow a seed that Amen. creates life. If you beget a child, that means the seed has taken root and there's life there. There is a difference, certainly, between a baby in the womb and a baby in the arms, but both are alive. A baby isn't breathing on its own. And you know, that's what the Holy Spirit is. You're breathing in the breath of God. A baby isn't breathing on its own and it isn't existing in any kind of even semi-independent state until it's born and it's in your arms, so to speak. But it's alive in the womb. Amen. There's a reason that there's a penalty. Amen. I find this society hypocritical. Somebody gets hit by a car while she was pregnant. It killed her, killed the baby. And they say it was double murder because you killed a child and a mother. But when they want to get rid of the child, they reinvent the words and act like it's not a child anymore. So if you want to kill it, it's not a child. If somebody else kills it, it is a child. But let's get down to the real issue. Is a baby alive in the womb or not before it's born? Sure it is. Sure it is. It's alive. It isn't independently alive. It won't be independently alive when it's born. But it's alive. Even before you're born of the Spirit, you're alive. So he begat us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Go ahead and read it out, Brother Jim. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart... All filthiness, superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your soul. And we could go on, and there's more points. You can go on to the end of the chapter, but we won't do that. There's an important point. The engrafted word. That isn't a word we use either. I don't know if anybody's talked about engrafting anything anytime lately. But to engraft something is like engraving it. It's putting it down into something connecting it on a deep level. It's like grafting, but it's in grafting. It's even more involved than just tying it together. It's tying it together at the cellular level, so to speak. God's word can take root in your life to that level. It can engraft itself in you where it gets down deep in your heart and connects to your heart. But listen to what it says. The engrafted word, which is able to save your soul. Save your soul from what? So great a death from death, which means the word of God can save your soul from death. My whole point in all these statements is that even before a person receives the Holy Spirit, if the word of God, that engrafted word, that living word, that incorruptible seed, if it takes root, there's life there. 
And God sees the life. He sees His Word in your heart. And says, that person has hidden my Word in their heart so that they might not sin against me. I'm going to give them an opportunity to go on. It may not be in this life. This would take it a lot deeper and this would take another night for sure. But it's very, very interesting that circumcision was in the eighth day. Considering how we look at the prophetic days, that there's 6,000 days, then there's the millennial reign, which is the 7,000th day. Then there's the white throne judgment, which is the eight 1,000-year day. If you're looking at these prophetic days, you realize everybody had to be circumcised by the eighth day. If you weren't circumcised by the eighth day, you were cut off from the covenant, which means you have to eventually be filled with the Holy Spirit, or you are not going to be able to stay under the covenant. But that does not mean that you couldn't be under the covenant because the children of Israel, and remember now, physical circumcision is now pictured by spiritual circumcision of the new covenant. So what that rite was all about, that R-I-T-E rite, that ritual, under the Old Covenant is fulfilled in the spiritual circumcision that starts with you getting filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's a process of replacing your heart, but it starts with that. But you realize that in the wilderness wandering, there was a whole generation that were not circumcised. It's kind of astonishing because right in the midst of all that, God was telling them how important it is and how you're going to die if you don't do it and how you're going to be cut off. And yet they didn't do it. A whole generation did not follow through on that part of their covenant responsibility. And so when they passed over the Jordan, before God would ever let them go into the promised land we were singing about in a spiritual sense, he had them stop at Gilgal. And there's a very graphic description there of them accomplishing that act. So that whole generation went in there right under the covenant. You realize they wondered 40 years. They were still God's people. They were still God's people and wandered 40 years without that act having been done. I think that's very like what's going to happen when some people come up in the second resurrection who had not been filled with the Holy Spirit. Because it'll be the eighth day. Now you have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You can't move forward now. We're not in that day yet. For the ones that so vehemently try to defend, you have to have the Holy Spirit to have a resurrection. We're not in that day yet. We're not there yet. We're not in the eighth day. We haven't reached the eighth day. The eighth day is still out ahead of us. You're going to have to have the Holy Spirit to have a first resurrection because you can't go on to perfection. But to come up to have an opportunity, part of that opportunity is to get the Holy Spirit. People that haven't gotten it will have an opportunity to get it. I'll give you a couple more scriptures before we get ready to close out. And maybe if I feel inspired or if you are interested in this subject, maybe I'll talk on it more in another service. 1 Corinthians 4.15 is another one. Paul says, for though, I think it starts, you have 10,000 instructors in Christ. You have not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. That's the preaching of the word, isn't it? 1 John 5, 1 is another example. When he says, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him that is also begotten of him. You notice what's connected with being begotten. Believing he's the Christ. That's initial faith. That is a begetting because the seed is the word of God. The spirit is what causes the seed to germinate and bring you to fuller development. You can't come to full development without the spirit. It's so critical. But it's the seed of the word of God that brings the life. Gestation is exactly the right word. You know who created the gestation process, right? God. Most of the processes God created, unless they're cursed now, And some of that process might be cursed with some of the pain and suffering associated with it. But most of the gestation process may be a picture. When the seed is implanted, life begins. Not when the child comes out of the womb. When the seed is implanted, life begins. 
I'll give you another layer to that that's a little bit deeper maybe, but it's still the point. At around 21 days on average, a child begins to have blood flow and it's heart beating and so on. The life of the flesh is in the blood, which means if the child has blood flowing, then he has to be alive before he's even been born. So there's another one, but I'm going to try to stop there. I've got a bunch of scriptures going through my mind. Maybe I'll come back to them. If enough people are, Brother Bear, I want to hear more about that, then maybe Wednesday night we'll get into it because there's a bunch of questions I've been receiving on it. I'm going to tell you, there are many more scriptures. There are some beautiful pictures. There's powerful things that tell us the value of the Word of God. We don't want to undermine that. We don't want to undermine and defame God by acting as if His Word isn't powerful enough to change people's hearts even before they're filled with the Holy Ghost. It's powerful enough. And if it changes hearts, the only reason God would be doing that is to give them an opportunity for life. God doesn't save people from their past sins so they can go on to die. And He saves you from your past sins by initial conversion. So if you go on to die after that, you'd have to have another opportunity. Why would He have given you that opportunity? He didn't give you any benefit in this life. In fact, it might give you some pains in this life. You turn to the Christian faith in this life, you're going to be an object of mockery and attack. The hope is out in the future. The hope is what we were talking about in these songs. The hope of the resurrection. I want us to have those promises deep in our heart. When you have hope like that that reaches past this life, it's the things that will keep you moving forward when it's hard, when you're faced with challenges. One of the greatest things that gave me peace in the midst of what I was dealing with a couple of years ago was I have a complete confidence in the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Amen. I can feel some. we were talking about this today. We were talking about things we've gone through. And I said, I'm telling you, there was a point I came to where it did not matter. I said, God, you do whatever you want to do to me. I'm going to still love you. Amen. You let me go through whatever you want me to go through. I won't lose faith in you. Amen. There's a power in that. Power. That's faith. Faith is a powerful thing, saints. And it can change us. And the Holy Spirit can change us as well to another level. It's levels. But thank God that we can have the kind of relationship with God that can get us out of this old world and get us into the world to come.